This is Yudaha Kohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. With me on the show today is a student organizer from the United States. We're not going to say where. This is Lila. Lila. Hi, Yehuda. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Lila is a recent college graduate working in journalism, and you're actually going back to school now. Is that correct? Yes, I am. All right. Now, the reason I asked Lila to join us on the show was really because I think that Lila's journey has been a journey shared by a lot of young Jews that I've seen over the years. And I really think that Lila's voice is an important voice to share with a lot of our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. The reason why I think your experiences are an experience that's quite common in your generation is because over the years, I've seen a lot of really intelligent, uh, sensitive, politically aware young Jews who are involved in pro-Israel activities on their campus, etc., but who at a certain point want to engage with Palestinians and hear the Palestinian story and try to kind of transcend the politics that exist within the like mainstream Jewish community in the United States. Would that be a fair summary of your experience? Uh, Yes, I would say that's basically what happened, although I was more thrown into it than attempted to transcend it, but yeah. Let's have you tell your story. All right. So I grew up totally entrenched in the Jewish community. In a lot of ways, I had a very typical Jewish American experience, you know, Jewish schools, Jewish camps. And I will say I didn't know that Palestinians existed until I got to uh, high school. Um, And in high school, which was a Jewish high school, I was part of uh, an APAC club there, which for some reason existed at a Jewish school. But, um, and- For some reason? I mean, there wasn't all that much they could do, (laughs) my feeling, but you know, I I mean, I think the reason Mm -hmm. is definitely to get kids prepared for going to college and Mm -hmm. being involved. Um, You know, they really supporters of APEC. Yeah, absolutely. They really want to prepare people when they're young because when you get to college, your whole your whole worldview is kind of shaken, and um, that eventually happened to me. Um, Before that, I was totally sure that I was right, totally sure that the pro-Israel community was right. And at my school, it was kind of the mainstream pro-Israel, like, organizations, you know, like, stand with us style, kind of. Um, They'd bring those types of speakers. Um, There was no J Street. Um, There was really no, even within Zionism, any political opposition. So I did numerous, you know, training programs, different pro-Israel, like programs going to Israel. And eventually um, the whole whole purpose of what they're doing is they're, they're taking Jewish college students and arming them to be soldiers in a proxy war on campus, right? So that's what I did. Can you elaborate Um, on that? Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a PR war going on um, Mm -hmm. waged by, I I guess, the Israeli government and more specifically pro-Israel 
organizations in the U.S. Um, and abroad, and they are extremely concerned about what's going on in college campuses um, because of SJP, and so they take Jewish college students, students for justice in Palestine. Yes, sorry, mm -hmm. um, and other, you know, other kind of pro-Palestinian sentiment or what they, mm -hmm. what they think is happening anyway on college campuses and the popularity that pro-Palestinian stances have, which actually is not popular at all, but um, they think it is. So they tell you basically that the fate of the Jewish people is on your shoulders, you an 18-year-old Jewish college student, and you have to fight SJP and make everybody like Israel um, because of, you know, all of Jewish history and um, Israel's safety. That's basically what's happening. That's not what's happening on the Palestinian side remotely. Um, there is, on the, on the pro-Israel side, there's money being poured into uh, Hasbara organizations. Um, and Hasbara being Israeli, Israel advocacy. That's right, yes. Yeah. And other kinds of um, Jewish organizations that promote pro-Israel stances like Hillel. Um, mm. And you still think you're the underdog, though. <laughs> but there's mm. uh, basically international organizations breathing down the necks of Jewish college students telling them, to fight for Israel on campus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, no, that's, so, that is definitely happening. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, I think the range of positions within that camp is very, very narrow. There's yes. only space for a very, I would say, kind of like establishment position that wants to view Israel as the Robin to America's Batman. Absolutely. That is what's going on. Um, so it's definitely, I would say, um, you know, as a Jew, there are Jewish perspectives there, kind of from a Jewish identity point of view, Israel's your home, etc. But definitely the driving force behind it is kind of the APAC stance that, yeah, just what you said, Israel is and, and basically your, America's satellite. Right, and, and your function on campus is to essentially teach other students or show them that Israel is the good guy in a G-rated movie. Yes. Yes. You mentioned before um, that there is a perception within the pro-Israel community of what's happening in pro-Palestinian circles. And you said the perception is very different from the reality. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, yeah. Um, so we're in a bit of a strange position as Jews because we're used to being the oppressed underdog. But um, mm -hmm. that's definitely not what's going on in, in this situation, um, especially considering the biggest Zionist organizations in the U.S. aren't Jewish. Um, you know, they're basically white American Christian organizations. I would also argue America's the biggest pro-Israel organization. Um, but yeah, so they think that basically Palestinians, um, Palestinian students are being funded by all these 
international players, um, like terrorist organizations, and that there's a huge conspiracy against Israel and Jewish college students. Um, and that means that you have to fight harder because you are the underdog and they have basically the backing of the entire world. That is a hundred percent not true. Um, they are extremely marginalized. Oh, they also think that, uh, pro-Israel organizations, at least they tell you that like all these professors are against you. You know, so the school administrations are against you. The BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is a huge threat. Um, that may be true, but not because of <laughs> Palestinians having any level mm -hmm. of power. They absolutely don't. Um, they are fighting mm -hmm. tooth and nail um, against every establishment, like, power, including the administrations a lot of the time. Um, mm -hmm. Professors, maybe there's a few, right? But generally, I even know professors who have been fired for their stances because pro-Israel organizations will um, go to the school and complain and complain. Um, that's true too. Mm -hmm. But Palestinian mm -hmm. students, um, they are basically in danger. Their parents don't want them to do this because they think they'll be in danger. They're putting everything at risk because if they get on Canary Mission, which is this very strange blacklist of Palestinian student activists um, on college campuses, and also it's actually mostly Arabs and a lot of Jews on there, um, and also um, professors. If they get on Canary Mission, they risk not being allowed into Israel and Palestine to see their families. Um, they're targeted. I mean, it's a huge risk for them. They have no funding, like not, not nearly to the extent that pro-Israel organizations do. Like, it's just not true that that there's some kind of national, international conspiracy against Israel on campus. It's absurd. So I want to go back to a couple of things you said. First of all, I, even if I wanted to, I couldn't argue with your assessment of pro-Palestinian mm. organizations on campus. I've seen nothing in the course of my adventures on American campuses or Canadian campuses to suggest anything other than what you said regarding Palestinian student organizations. Mm -hmm. But I would disagree with you. Well, I don't disagree with you that you have the United States government ostensibly supporting the state of Israel and, you know, Christian Zionists in the United States doing so as well. But I, I think it's important to point out that these are two groups, the U.S. government and the Christian evangelicals, who really have their own agendas and their own skin in the game. It's not like they're just taking a side as neutral outsiders. Oh, I they're, absolutely agree with you. They're, they're like invested in the conflict. And I boycott the Christian Zionists. And I have for probably since I first got radicalized and started organizing. But the U.S. government, uh, you know, it's important, I think, for us to separate between actual Jewish liberation and what's considered pro-Israel. Right. I, no, I... Yeah. I Agree completely. Like I would say that, you know, we can call Zionism a stage or a 
movement of Jewish liberation, at least the material liberation that existed to a certain extent, succeeded and ended. And mm -hmm. I, I would actually say that Zionism ended in 1967, just because A, it's when we returned to Zion, we returned to Jerusalem in 1967. And the kind of revolutionary energy that was kind of like driving us just stopped. And since then, I don't think there's been a clear or at least a unified conception of what Jewish liberation looks like now. Uh, but I think that from the perspective of, let's say, the U.S. government, Israel's great as long as it's going to function as an outpost of American empire, as an outpost of Western civilization. As long as Israel plays that role and is at odds with its neighbors, I think the U.S. is happy to arm and fund an Israel and pre-six-day war borders, you know, even with this map now that keeps changing every day. The, I don't know if you've been following the Trump plan. Oh, yeah. The century. Right. So that's very unclear. It hasn't really been demystified yet what, what the Trump plan actually is, despite being unveiled in January. Mm -hmm. And I think it was presented in such a way that would cause a lot of internal strife within Israeli society. I mean, it's definitely marketed as the most pro-Israel <laughs> ever. Yeah. So, okay, a few things. Um, sure. I'll address that, which is, mm -hmm. I think they, I, I, I'm actually not sure if the Trump administration knew the plan was ridiculous or if they genuinely thought it was great. I cannot tell what they think. Um, but I do think that it's definitely a way for them to solidify their own base electorally. Um, whether or not the plan is ever implemented. I think it's a political tool um, also to show Trump's friendship with Netanyahu, right? Because that's really what his policies towards Israel <laughs> tend to be um, between these two, you know, strong men. That's how Trump sees it, I think. Um, that's interesting. Because here, so, I think Netanyahu uses the relationship also politically, but in a way to make himself look stronger than he would have perceived. Yeah. I, I mean, think, Trump is a bulldozer. Um, At the end of the day, Trump, Trump is a political bully, just like he was a, uh, a bully in business and a bully in entertainment. Like he's a political bulldozer who just pushes to get his way. Yeah. I think there's something very unstable about the Trump presidency that I think scares a lot of people, not, not just in the United States, I think globally. Yeah. Not with the establishment, whether it was, you know, whether it was Reagan or Bush or Clinton or Bush or Obama, you know, you had the same establishment in place and it, it was business as usual. Whereas, you know, Trump is almost like a caricature of the American political system. Yeah. It's, it's as if it's been eating its own tail for generations and finally like vomited out Trump. Uh, it's very interesting and very strange. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's definitely, or his base is opposed to the establishment on both parties. Um, that's interesting. But um, right. in other ways, themselves he, as anti-establishment. That's how they perceive themselves. Right. Um, of course, they well, support. In the way they are, they are not the establishment at the end of the day. I would say Trump appears to be this Frankenstein's monster of the establishment, but he himself yeah. might not be the establishment. He's just not a better person. You know, he's not yeah. somebody who's looking to reform it or change it. No, and I think on the liberal end of things, they don't like him because he's not civil enough, not necessarily right. because they oppose all of his policies. Some of them they do, but like he supports Israel. Okay, Biden also would support Israel. You know, it's not that 
different. Um, they just wanted to be more polite, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but, but he exposes them. I think he draws a lot of attention to things that are wrong with U.S. behavior domestically and abroad. I think he just, he exists without the polish. And, yeah. And he kind of like owns things that previous administrations would kind of be embarrassed to have aired. I do agree with that. And um, in terms of American empire, I do think what you said about how America and Christian Zionists view Israel is definitely true. And it's also reflected in the way, at least the way I've seen um, Americans view Jews here. They don't view Jews and Israel as a distinct people or a distinct Jewish country. They see it as an extension of American supremacy. I really, I'm not sure, you know, in some ways they, they see Jews as kind of an exotic version of American Christianity um, and have absolutely no, no idea what Jews actually are. Right. They like orientalize us in a way that sometimes makes us white. Yes, exactly. Uh, or, in, in Europe, we were actually called Halbasians. Yeah. Like half Asian by the you know white Christian European population. It's interesting. We've spoken before on the show about how anti-Semitism works systemically in capitalism as this middle agent oppressor role. Uh, are you familiar yeah. with the concept? Yes, I am. So we are still oppressed in a sense, but our oppression is that we're pushed into the role of oppressor. Yes. It, it's very much like a Darth Vader role in, yeah. in many ways. And I think it... Um... It varies maybe based on the context, but in general, I think that's true. Um, I would say in in some cases, the more stark Orientalism jumps out. Um, For example, the way America has been discussing the coronavirus outbreak in ultra-Orthodox communities Mm -hmm. um, sounds like, I think there was an op-ed about this actually. Um, it sounds more like um, Islamophobia, other kinds of xenophobia and racism, um, where Jews are completely othered in their own city. And, you know, but then if Jews assimilate and are, are basically considered to be white Americans, um, that's used against them too, um, even as Jews have an immense amount of privilege or can. Yeah, and the conspiracy theories come out then. Right. And, and that's exactly the point. The point is to create this vulnerable buffer group that could mm-hmm. be blamed for the crimes of the ruling class when the oppressed are finally ready to fight back against their oppression. Yeah. And that's happened time and again in history. And, and it worked. It definitely functioned that way in feudalism. You know, you saw that the Jew was not really from the village or from the castle. We weren't lords. We weren't the uh, ruling class, but we were also not the peasants. We were kind of like the tax collectors and the money lenders who hmm. the peasants would take their wrath out on when they were finally ready or drunk enough to fight back against their oppression. Right. And I think that's, in many ways, I think that's the role the state of Israel is playing on, on a global level. I think okay. the United States uses Israel that way as this kind of like middle agent oppressor that has to be at odds with its neighbors and indebted to American power. And even, I mean, even the two-state solution, as it's been envisioned, I think, for decades already is one that would create two vulnerable nation states that really need the United States to survive. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think Israel's the only country like that? Because I see a lot of similar situations around the world where America will install a dictator or something mm-hmm. um, and make oh, the country I, dependent I, on them. Right, no, I think that is the way neo-imperialism works, right. often through economic aid and you know military aid, etc. Yeah. That, that's just the MO of U.S. empire today. Uh, I agree. I would say from a Palestinian perspective, that's the role Israel plays. Um, you know, they have to buy Israeli food because that's all that's available, things like that. Right. I, I personally see that as much more complicated. I do believe that right now Jewish and Palestinian liberation are very much intertwined. I think it, it's actually a very unique story. I don't think we see this story very much in human history, that you kind of have these two people belonging to this one country and one manages to achieve at least material liberation at the expense of the other. And now we're almost at this point where Jewish ideological liberation is connected to Palestinian material liberation. Mm-hmm. Meaning that I would argue, you know, that I've been living in Israel almost 19 years. And I'm convinced at this point that the vast majority of Israeli policies that Palestinians feel most oppressed by are actually symptoms of a Jewish identity crisis. Mm-hmm. The obvious example is that 53 years ago, we came back to what we would consider to be the cradle of Jewish civilization, where our ancestors lived, where most of our national mythology took place, places like Hebron, Hebron places like Jerusalem, places like Jericho, Beit El, Shechem, Nablus, you know, Shiloh, uh, Bethlehem. And we didn't quite know what to do because these were the places we had been dreaming of returning to for literally thousands of years. But we knew that the international community, the United States and its allies didn't want us in these places. Uh, But on the other hand, we felt we need just from a strategic perspective, these mountains overlooking our densest population centers, like we needed that to survive, to defend ourselves, you know, moving forward. But on the other hand, there are all these non-Jews here who we associate, and I think Israeli society very much associates the Palestinians as part of a much larger hostile Arab collective that has tried to wipe us out over and over again. I'm sure you're familiar with the narrative. And I think people believe it. Even some of the things you said were communicated to you in high school and in APAC and Stand With Us, et cetera. I think for the most part, the people communicating these messages deeply believe them themselves. I don't think that they're lying. Uh, But with Israel, you know, for the last 53 years, we've been in these territories and we've done nothing and we've done everything and we've had an extremely incoherent policy. We say one thing, like since the Oslo Accords were signed, we've been speaking as if we're moving in a certain direction while at the same time practically doing the opposite on the ground. And I could imagine that being very, not only frustrating, but confusing for Palestinians who have to live under it. And they're not quite sure what's going to happen tomorrow because what Israel says and what Israel does are, are most often two very different things. Yeah, um, I will, I'll say, um, because I, I do know a lot of Palestinians and I've talked to them a lot, I'm sure you have also. So, but from a Palestinian perspective, um, they feel like, I think, Jewish identity, like they're not um, like a tangent to the Jewish narrative, right? They're their own people with their Mm -hmm. own goals and their own national identity. Um, They're at the center of their own story. Yes. And I think that the the Jewish narrative 
certainly here also, I think in Israel, um, doesn't see Palestinians that way in general. Um, and oh, or, that, or if it does, they're the antagonist. Right. And definitely um, you can hear that in the way people demonize Palestinians and, yes, talk about the Israeli-Arab conflict and will blame other countries. You know, if you say Palestinians were expelled in 48, they'll come back mm -hmm. with, well, Jews were expelled from Egypt, as if Palestinians have control over Egypt, um, because they see a sort of like pan-Arab identity instead of distinct identities. And Palestinians right. see themselves as a completely distinct identity, even as they feel kinship with, with other Arabs, for sure. In, in my experience, I think similar to Jewish identity, Palestinian identity can be very layered. Yeah. You know, there's identification with like the actual village, the actual family. And then there's, you know, the broader to be a, a Palestinian and to be an Arab, et cetera, or to be a Muslim or a Christian. Like, I think that they're, they're very layered identities. Jews also have very layered identities often, especially Jews who've traveled to many different diasporas or whose parents come from different diasporas. You know, but I think that it's true that the Palestinian identity is either perceived as hostile, antagonistic, existing for the sake of obstructing Jewish liberation or hurting the Jews or vilifying Israel or what have you, or it's right. just kind of peripheral to our story. Um, right. And, and in, in some ways it is peripheral to our story, meaning like our story, the story we tell ourselves, and I don't mean the Hasbro organizations. I mean like okay. Jews, you know, at least Jews growing up in Israel who are growing up very connected to their own identities and, you know, in their own land, et cetera. Even if you were to take the average Jew living in the West Bank, whether, and, and again, I don't think Jews in the West Bank are a homogenous group. I think a Jew in Hebron is very different from a Jew in Efrat. A Jew in Ariel is different from a Jew in Betel or Yitzar. You know, these are all different types of, of, and of course, within these communities, we have different types of people. But I think there is an ideological common denominator, and that's that we are a proud ancient people from this land who were unjustly displaced against our will. We somehow managed to retain our identity for thousands of years and actually come back and reunite in the land we were displaced from and against all odds attain political independence. And now the international community wants to displace us again. And the way they yes. want to do that is through a two-state solution. And the Palestinians are peripheral to that entire story, except that they're perceived as actually desiring that two-state solution, meaning the excuse given by the international community for wanting to divide our land and displace us again in our story is the Palestinians. So there seems to be this like focus and this impulse to always like defend Israel as like the good guy in the story and to have a quick answer as if we're in a court of law, even when they're like these like technical answers, like you said, we blame Egypt for expelling Jews and that's supposed to somehow change the Nakba in some way or like right. erase the Nakba or soften the Nakba because Jews were also expelled. I, I think instead of just saying, you know, it, it was a conflict and it was messy and you know what, maybe we did some things wrong. Personally, I, I think it's incredible that Jews who blame David Ben-Gurion for the saison and for the mm. Altalena have trouble accepting that he could have orchestrated a Nakba. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think um, even as, you know, I, I do see the founding 
at least the uh, sort of the material founding of the state of Israel as a colonial effort for a number of reasons um, at the same time. I, I think it's really unfortunate that Jews, including Israelis, um, and I, I think this is replicated in a lot of different historically oppressed groups that people turn against each other instead of standing in solidarity. Because I think we, if anybody, could understand the longing of a displaced people to return to their homeland, right? Um, right. That's always my answer when I hear Jews talk about how only Palestinians have like hereditary refugee status and no other refugee group. Is that, I'm like, well, what about us? Right. <laughs> like that, right. that's our whole story for 2000 years that we were passing it on and, and refusing to accept any other homeland. And any Jew who did accept any other homeland, whether it be Germany or France or even the United States, is considered on some level a sellout or a traitor to Jewish history. Exactly. So, yeah, so it, it, I think the stories very much mirror one another. When you speak about the founding of the state of Israel as a colonial act, can you be more specific? Sure. Um, I'm talking about. Um, basically the mainstream of Zionism that ended up um, sort of winning out over the others, even if they were somewhat incorporated. Um, the you know, Zionism. labor Zionism, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, from Herzl through the founding of the State of Israel, um, well, also the Balfour Declaration, um, mm -hmm. which is based on anti-Semitism. Um, but, but even, or British colonialism, even without the anti-Semitism. More broadly, yes, and right. Sykes-Picot. Right. Um, I see it as, as generally an effort that grew out of the period um, that it happened in, which is a colonial period. Mm -hmm. um, and I see the methods that Israel uses to be colonial methods. And the mm -hmm. way Israel views itself is a little bit split, but one of the ways it views itself is definitely a colonial view, as in kind of right? The villa in the jungle view. Yeah, certainly Israel's ruling class. Although yeah. I would say that that sector of Israeli society is, is shrinking every generation. Yeah, it's interesting. becoming less and less relevant. It is very interesting because I think from the American Jewish perspective, the Israel that's rising in its place is considered the scarier Israel or the like less Western oh, yes. or less liberal in many ways. But it's actually that Israel, this like new Israel that's rising, that has the potential for a better relationship dynamic with the Palestinians and with our other neighbors in the region. I hope you're right about that. Um, I definitely see um, what you're describing to be the case. Um, and I don't think it's just a left-wing, right-wing thing. No, I think it's I know, the power I, I, Those of, terms are yeah. actually very problematic in Israeli society yeah. because they describe things that are very different from what they describe elsewhere. Yes. Um, uh, well, that's the way American Jews view it, right? Um, they they mm -hmm. see it as the same dynamic as the U.S., and they want Israel to be basically a liberal Western country, and um, anything too uh, too extreme as a threat, which it mm -hmm. can be for Palestinians, but they see it as a, a threat to their kind of ideological purity. Right. And, and their ability to kind of just fit into American society and not have yeah. to struggle with questions of dual loyalty. I mean, the more American Israel looks and the more Israeli interests are perceived or presented to be extensions of American interests, or at least in lockstep with American interests, the more that the average Jew in the United States feels comfortable. I mean, that's part of the 
you know, inclusion into whiteness that I think yeah. Jews experience in the United States. This idea of Israel is kind of, like I said before, the Robin to America's Batman. Yeah, it's true. Look at the- like, like I often used to say that J Street is not the antithesis to APEC. Uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan Pollard is the antithesis to APEC. Okay. Jonathan Pollard is a figure who clearly represents a choice, at least one Jew had to make, between loyalty to U.S. interests and Israeli interests. Mm-hmm. And the irony, I think, is that, uh, from my experience, and the Palestinians I've talked to, there's no mm-hmm. distinction for that. Like, Israel acting nice and Western is exactly what they hate. Um, because it means mm. their continued colonization. They don't care if it's nice or not, <laughs> right? Right. I, I've noticed over the years, and my discussions with Palestinians have always kind of met breakthroughs when we're willing to engage the narratives of the other without feeling our own narratives threatened. So I think you have a lot of this on both sides, as I'm sure you've seen, because you've been a member of APAC and you've been a member of SJP, right? So like you've been in both circles at some point. Sure, I have. So so I'm sure you're you're familiar with how threatened both sides feel by the narrative of the other, by accepting the legitimacy of the other's story and how that might delegitimize my story. I know that a lot of the work I do of trying to bring Jewish and Palestinian radicals together towards a shared struggle you know, often has to first get people to accept the narrative of the other in a way that aims towards a larger narrative that can transcend the like ostensibly rival stories being told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I see that often in that um, people conflate issues of identity with kind of systemic analysis, and those aren't the same thing. And so mm-hmm. when you're criticizing or tearing down like a system that you're describing from an analytical point of view, people think, or people actually do uh, attack your identity while doing it. I mean, I have had that experience as a Jew and tends to not be around Palestinians as much as white leftists, but you know. (laughs) Right. It's also a question, I think, of how complicated our story is and how we don't neatly fit into any boxes. On the one hand, I think the most accurate way to maybe describe this is we're a people that definitely has an ancient and constant connection to the land. But on the other hand, we we liberated ourselves partially through tools of colonialism and Um, attitudes of colonialism. Yeah. But for example, there's also like the legacy of those who fought the British Empire to free the land, meaning when you spoke about the Balfour Declaration and and Sykes-Picot, at the end of the day, that wasn't really about creating some kind of Jewish state. That was really just a post-World War I mask for further colonization, meaning imperialism, colonialism was very much blamed for the horrors of World War I and like the mandate system became a new clean kind of colonialism with some like vague promise of eventual political independence. But I don't think the British ever planned to leave here until, Mm -hmm. you know, until people actually struck at their economic interests in the region and started killing them. Right. I think beyond... um... I think beyond that, you know, looking back through Jewish history, um, even like at the Roman Empire, right, where there were rebellions in the land, there are also diaspora rebellions like yeah. across the Roman Empire, like in Egypt and other places. Um, right. like in the meaning Kito's that, War. yeah, and very early on, like even though people in diaspora are still connected to the land, we also were able to maintain um, 
a diasporic national identity, even when we weren't with each other, which is another feature, not only of Jews. Yeah, I see it with the Romani also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. It's true, but but it's largely unique to us, especially for, for such a large period of time, for such a long period of time that we really did exist ironically as Palestinian refugees for almost 2,000 years. It's interesting. Like that was kind of our story. I I imagine that in the modern suburban American Jewish context, uh, (laughs) a a day like Tisha B'Av is just like this religious day where you're supposed to not eat and that's how you fulfill your religious obligation. Whereas in reality, I think for many, many centuries, it was a day that we were like, we can't eat. Like we're just, we have no appetite because we're in mourning because we were displaced from our land because our civilization was destroyed. And it was, I think only with the Haskalah, really only with the Jewish enlightenment in Europe where we were kind of promised inclusion into European societies in exchange for our national identity that we started to relate to a lot of what we would call like the Jewish life cycle as kind of these religious rituals as opposed to this kind of story that follows a people through time and space. Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, most Jews probably don't know what Tisha B'Av is here, just to be honest. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the ones who do. Like I yeah. would say like even the average, for lack of a better term, Orthodox Jew in the United States is relating to it as like a religious day, a day that his God doesn't want him to mm-hmm. eat, as opposed to like a day that I can't eat because I'm mourning the fact that the Roman Empire destroyed my people. Right. And send us into exile. And and I think that's part of what we need to fix. You know, one of the one of the issues that we're constantly pushing here is for what we call a post-colonial conversation that Israel just never had, because as you said before, it was like the Jews or the Zionists who cooperated with British imperialism that ended up taking control of the country once the British were forced to leave by the Jews who actually fought empire. And those Jews who took power essentially just kind of took down the British flag and put a Jewish flag on a British system. So for the last Mm -hmm. seven decades, we've essentially had a British colonial system, the British mandate, but with Jewish decorations. And I think that's part of the problem. And and it doesn't fit our culture, meaning even never mind what it does to Palestinians for a second. The fact that we had three national elections in the course of a year uh, shows that this is not, and, and India suffers from the same problem. They just kind of continued with the British structures and policies from their colonial period, that part of independence is not just putting up your own flag. Independence is also a conversation over, well, what is the identity of this country going to be? What are the values of this country? And how do we express all of that through the policies and institutions of a state in the 21st century? And I think that, uh, you know, some of the issues we should be struggling with, for example, is what do minority rights look like in Jewish society? Mm-hmm. Or how do you structure a Jewish economy? You know, in a couple of years, we're going to have Shemitah year. Is that going to have socioeconomic ramifications in our society? Will it wipe out debt? Should banks in our country charge interest? I mean, these are questions we actually have to ask. And these are conversations we actually have to promote so that we can figure out who we are, figure out what we came back to life for. Because I do believe that Israel came back to life for a reason. Like, I think that there's a purpose to this. I I don't think we came back to life for no reason. I think there's a purpose to this. And I also think that the Palestinians are here for a reason. I think our struggle with them needs to help make us both who we're supposed to be. And, And I don't mean that in a way that should 
be taken as dismissing anybody's pain or anybody's trauma or, or belittling anybody's experience. I think all the pain that we've been suffering, the two peoples here for the last hundred years is very real. And a lot of the trauma is very real. And the need for not only validation, but justice is very real. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that can happen until we're willing to really hear each other and understand that we can actually be co-protagonists in the same story instead of the antagonists in one another's stories. I am worried that um, the conversations that you want to happen, you know, those are about like what the mechanisms of a Jewish state would be. But um, I think there are a couple bigger conversations that uh, have never happened yet, um, which is more what is Jewish identity in general. And it it seems to be very fluid right now. Um, People are kind of fractured and, you know, that's okay. We've never been monolithic, but it seems to be very fractured. Yeah. Um, Well, I I think there are aspects of Jewish identity that are championed by different sectors of our people, like different groups within our people tend to take up different components of Jewish identity that are all true and all like, for lack of a better term, authentic to our experience, values, history, etc. But the way they're presented, especially within an American political context, often look as if they're in conflict with one another. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do that, see, go on. No, no. I just think that when you see, for example, in, in groups like, if not now, um, yeah. I think there are a lot <laughs> of very deep, Jewish values being promoted in those spaces. And I I also think that there are very deep Jewish values being promoted, you know, let's say in the Jewish community in Hebron or the Hilltop Youth. I think there's something deeply Jewish that they're expressing and, and values and aspirations that our people have carried for thousands of years. And ultimately, I think we're at a point in our national development where those need to be combined in many ways. Like, um, I think right now, for example, like just taking the American Jewish scene, there are a lot of Jews your age who are sensitive to injustices and systems of oppression and institutionalized racism and all of the different uh, exploitative and oppressive symptoms of capitalism, but have almost no connection to the story of their own people or to their own identity. And on the other hand, there are a lot of Jews who are very deeply committed to their own identity, their own story, Israel, et cetera, but have no, not just sensitivity, but even awareness for how systems of oppression work. And I think one of the tasks of this generation is to kind of create a critical mass of Jews who are able to bring their full selves to movements for social change by having a deep Jewish identity that's actually rooted in thousands of years of our people's history and connected to our aspirations and the values of our prophets and sages, et cetera, yet see it as their role or not even yet, but like, and therefore see it as their role to challenge and correct the injustices of our world. Hmm. I, I see that happening to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. People, I've, I talked to you about this earlier, um, like myself and a lot of young Jews that I know feel very alienated from I guess, the mainstream Jewish community here um, for both of those reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So the feeling, kind of the sense that um, they don't express kind of an authentic Jewish identity, at least not what we're comfortable with, and they ignore systemic injustice or even support it in favor of being seen Mm -hmm. as establishment. 
I, and I think it's very similar to a lot of criticisms of the state of Israel. You know, you have, for example, one of the fastest growing populations within Israeli society is the Haredi community. And yeah. Haredim see the state of Israel as not Jewish enough, whereas I think Palestinians and a lot of other non-Jews here see the state as too Jewish uh, in a very explicit yeah. way. So, I, I mean, I think the answer to that is to really make the Jewish character of the state much softer, but much deeper than it is right now. Like for me, the ideal would be a state that the average Haredi child sees the Jewishness in every aspect of, meaning sees the Jewishness in almost every policy and institution because he's literate in Jewish identity. Whereas the average non-Jew doesn't even notice it's a Jewish state. He just experiences a democratic society where he has full equality. And I think we can achieve that if we're willing to have these national conversations, if we're willing to kind of engage in what we would call the post-colonial conversation on a national yeah. level. Um well, what about the inherent Palestinianness of the state, right? Because no, I think it means something different. In my experience, even our understanding of national identity is very different. Jews, for example, have a very primordial understanding of national identity. You know, like, for example, at the Pesach Seder, we tell ourselves that we left Egypt, that yeah. we are the same identity, that that's not a socially constructed nation. We come from a very specific set of tribal ancestors. And our story is the story of the descendants of that specific family and those who've joined us along the way. Whereas in my experience, most Palestinians relate to Palestinian identity as just the indigenous peoples of Palestine throughout time, including Jebusites, right. including the ancient Hebrews, including the Philistines, Canaanites, etc. That's right. So, so I think our identities are very different. And you can therefore come and say that Rabbi Akiva was a Jew and he was also a Palestinian, uh, meaning that his Jewish identity and Palestinian identity can be simultaneously expressed. Yeah, and a lot and of I Palestinians that, will say things like that. Right. So I don't think the identities are really in conflict. I think we're just looking for different things. And it's a good thing. I mean, part of it is problematic because... I would say because our conceptions of national identity are so different and because I think most peoples are probably in the habit of projecting their own understanding of national identity on others. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of led to not only misunderstanding, but these mutual accusations of you not being real, right? Like many Palestinians right. deny Jewish national identity, even though they can accept, yeah, there's like a religious group called the Jews, but there's not like a, a people, right? And a lot of Jews, especially Israelis and pro-Israel Jews, you know, Zionists abroad say, well, there's no such thing as Palestinians, right? Like who was their first national leader before Arafat? And what was their currency a thousand years ago? And all these other questions, because we're both projecting our own understanding of what national identity means on another group that just doesn't fit that definition or that set of experiences. Yeah. And then I would say there's another form of national identity being projected onto everyone, which is kind of the American settler mm -hmm. idea of national identity in modern nation states. Mm -hmm. um, right. And that, that does not work with Jewish identity, in my opinion. It only works with Palestinian identity to the extent that that's, you know, what they're dealing with globally today. But like um, Palestinians and people in the region generally are used to having like multiple ethnic, even like uh, peoplehood identities living in the same place and being distinct and having localized identities. We, again, we should mm -hmm. understand that. But the concept, at least the American concept of nation states, doesn't take that into account.
Right. And part of the problem is we're in such a position, I think, when, for example, a lot of the educators that you had, those who were teaching you at APAC and those who were preparing you for campuses or whatever, yeah. um, they, there's this like impulse to defend Israel. Like Israel has yeah. to be the good guy. You know, I, I always say to students that students who are involved in these organizations, like people who are involved in Stand With Us or APAC or whatever, I, I say, you know, if you saw a group of students on campus not fighting for any political change of any kind, but merely organizing to defend the reputation and policies of a specific nation state, let's say South Korea, you would assume that those students are agents of the South Korean state. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, a lot of pro-Israel students often complain about feeling ostracized from the activist community on their campus. And yeah. they don't realize that, well, everybody in that community is fighting for social change of some kind, fighting to make the world better. And you're just kind of redirecting every conversation back to why Israel's so great. Yeah, exactly. I used to be one of those students. Um, nice. Honestly, they, they really don't get that because they do feel like, like a misunderstood underdog. But I mean, then it can be very traumatizing genuinely to mm. kind of find your way out of that. It was very traumatizing for me. So do you want to share a little bit about your journey, how you experienced that? Sure. Um, what caused that? Yeah, well, basically what happened was because of the nature of campus activism, I ended up internalizing Palestinian talking points, um, mm -hmm. but I didn't think about them um, until I did. And then you sort of question everything mm -hmm. and everyone else would question everything. Like what if everything they say is correct? like no of course not right mm -hmm. um i ended up realizing that yeah basically everything they said was correct but that came from well, the narrative is true meaning their yeah, story their narrative is true. is true their experiences right. are true experiences like i i was this isn't true for everybody for me i didn't think the nakba was real i thought it was a lie mm -hmm. i didn't think like and i, a lie I, for I the bought sake into of all of it disenfranchising you yes like a, a lie for the sake of hurting you yes me specifically <laughs> No, meaning no, you, the Jewish people, yeah. Right, right. Oh, yes. No, for sure. I bought into all of it, um, which is, you know, kind of a result of my sheltered, like, uh, Jewish school experience. Mm -hmm. um, I also, it, it was hurting me because um, I also had very Israeli upbringing, even though I'm not Israeli. So I felt, and I still do feel, an emotional connection to Israeli culture, to Israeli people. That's what I grew up on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it was a threat to my identity in that way. Um, thankfully, I also had a strong enough identity that it really didn't shake my Jewishness. Um, mm -hmm. But, I mean, it was at the point where I would, it was like traumatic for me to even read, um, read headlines, Israeli headlines, of things like home demolitions because I was so, um, I had such cognitive dissonance, but you, eventually. Jewish or Palestinian home demolitions? Palestinian home demolitions. Uh, things like children being arrested, raids, you know, the mechanisms of the occupation basically. And they're openly reported on in Israeli papers. It's not a secret, but for me, right. I, I couldn't, I couldn't process it because it would mean that, Israel was bad, and I had been saying for years, Israel is good. Mm -hmm. Everything you hear is a lie. 
Yeah. Right. And the impulse is not just to prove Israel's good, but Israel's good according to a very specific yardstick. Yeah. Kind of like virtuous good guy in this, you know, children's movie. Yeah, right. The most moral army on earth. Right, so which I, I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> you know. I, I mean, I just don't understand the thought process of branding your army as moral, especially when the purpose of an army is to make people scared to fight you. It is strange. So eventually I started talking to real Palestinians. Um, I visited Israel and I, I would go from... <laughs> from shop to shop, like from Palestinian stores, talking to people and asking how things are. And mm -hmm. the response I got is like, well, first people are very friendly and they love mm -hmm. when someone asks them how things are. They're like, oh, things are terrible. Um, we don't have the same electricity. Our garbage isn't being picked up. Um, people like my family can't get a permit to come in, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was um, kind of grounding for me to hear that and I started talking to Palestinians in the diaspora as well mm. and um, understanding the depth of their pain and the depth of their trauma and again something we can understand we know generational trauma yeah. um, and it took a while but um, I sort of became comfortable um, in the reality of what Palestinians face and um, kind of my own Jewish identity, which, you know, I came to terms with all of it. And it kind of encouraged me both to fight harder for Palestinians based on my identity and be more in touch with my identity um, because I didn't have a, a very new secular nation state to fill that void. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, it's interesting. I think, you know, Zionism on the one hand, if you look at many of the writings of these Zionist thinkers and leaders, Zionism didn't achieve the goals of Herzl and Pinsker of normalizing the Jewish people or ending anti-Semitism, but I think it did succeed inadvertently achieving some of the deeper aspirations of the Jewish people. And now we're at a point where I think Zionism is definitely over and we have to figure out what the next stage of Jewish liberation looks like, how Palestinians are incorporated into that, how much you know, we need to dig deeper into our own identity to get there, and the extent to which we have to free ourselves from U.S. aid and diplomatic attachments to empire in order to fully be ourselves. I think you know, when we speak about anti-Semitism working by pushing Israel or pushing the Jewish people into this Middle Asian depressor role, I would say that part of our liberation is then largely rejecting that role, that we have to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressors of the world. Um, and that, that looks like a different Israel to me. I mean, that's the, that, that's the Israel I want to see. I want to see an Israel that is aligned with the oppressed of the world and is standing up for, you know, for weaker people's and ending exploitation. But we can't do that when we view our own survival. And again, this is, I think, how anti-Semitism works, that we're so locked into seeing our own survival as dependent on our connection to this really, really powerful, whether it be Duke, Kaiser, Czar, Lord, superpower, whatever it is that we feel we're being protected by, we have to like maintain our connection to that source of power. And I think our liberation is very much 
rejecting that connection and seeing ourselves as capable of being independent and acting in the world according to our own values and our own interests and our own vision for the world supposed to be. And I think that would really allow us to formulate some positions that we haven't formulated as a people. Uh, like, certainly not as people with power. Yeah. Do you think it's possible given the history and the current context of not just with Israel, American imperialism globally, because Palestinians, a lot of Palestinians and other oppressed peoples um, see the effort a lot of the time that's kind of centered on American imperialism and influence and military interests. <laughs> Look, I think just the desire to be free, if Israel were to speak, put it this way, let's say hypothetically, stand with us on your campus, right? Yeah. Was actually holding demonstrations against the U.S.-Israel relationship and talking about the need for Israel to be free of empire. <laughs> and I mean, could you imagine just the different message no. that would send to everybody else? And the message it would send to ourselves, to who we are and what we want and what we can be. Yeah, I, I think there's a long way to go there. Of course there is, for sure. But it's a much shorter road, I think, in Israeli society, because I think there are many more sectors of Israeli society who are capable or ready for these conversations. Uh, I actually think that among American Jews, the left is much more prepared to enter into these conversations than the American Jewish right. Uh, the American Jewish right is not there. It's, it's interesting, I think, that one of the interesting um, features of the Trump era is that the Jewish right in the United States has become far more assimilationist and the yeah. Jewish left has been much more actively seeking out identity. I agree. Um, I would say the Jewish, like the true Jewish left, because sort of the center, like no, I mean, liberal. Actually, yeah. Right, no, not, not liberals, le the, the okay. Jewish left. The actual, yeah, like, I... yeah. Uh, because I think that whereas I think liberalism is really an ideology that's foreign to our people, I would say that the left has its ideological roots in our people's prophetic tradition and vision for the world. Like I see a lot of overlap when I speak to people who are, whether they be Marxist, Leninists or anarchists or Trotskyists or whatever, I think the world they want to see, you know, when you talk about, well, what is your project about? Where mm -hmm. are you trying to go? The world they want to see is very similar to the world that our ancestors envisioned. Yeah, I would agree that people on the far left, uh, Jews on the far left, are more willing to kind of have that conversation because from my experience, um, you know, in a post-colonial framework, people are very interested in, um, like, understanding their identity and being proud of it and um, standing in solidarity with other oppressed people because of it. But... Um, you know, even at the schools, well, one of them, the one I went to, which is a conservative school, I don't know how far we'll get with the mainstream Jewish community when there are still flags on the bima, right? That's I, my feeling actually, anyway. It's, it's interesting when I travel to the United States and I go to a synagogue, I'm always very careful to position myself in front of the American flag not just because of what the American flag itself might represent, but also because they often come with these like little statues of eagles on top that I don't want to bow yeah. to. Um, yeah. The, the Israeli flag, I actually have less of a problem with. I see the Israeli flag as actually the flag of the Jewish people. I'd like Israel's policies to reflect our values more, but I think that at the end of the day, the flag is a flag that actually does express things that are deeply found in our identity. 
Well, it's probably one of the flu. It's probably one of the few flags in the world that I think actually do that for our people. The the flag itself is designed to express something that's deep in the people's identity, mm-hmm. or at least in the region. Maybe not in the world. I think in the region it's unique because most of the flags in in the Semitic region are just variations of a flag that was designed by Mark Sykes, including yeah. the Palestinian flag. By the way, like the Palestinian flag was pretty much designed by Mark Sykes. Yeah. Well, maybe, but I think. Um... It still means something, sure. you know, deeply sure. to the people. At this point, but that's a, a lot of that is the result of our experiences over the last hundred years. Yeah. Which means I'm, we could be hopeful that we'll have better experiences, which make other things mean things to us, etc. But the, the truth is, even though I do believe that the Israeli flag does express my people's identity, and I do see it as the flag of the Jewish people, I'm open to changing it. Yeah. But I would, again, just like everything else in Israeli society, I would want to change it in such a way that makes it more deeply Jewish, but more softly Jewish. So it could be more inclusive to those who are not Jewish, but at the same time, I can see my identity being expressed in it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I understand. It's certainly complicated at this point. We're living in a really exciting, but a very challenging chapter of our people's story, I think. Yeah. You and I are living in two different locations, meaning that we're probably day-to-day challenged with different aspects of what's happening in this chapter of our people's story. But it is a very complicated chapter. And for example, I find myself often very frustrated. One thing that frustrates me in general is just ignorance. When I hear people make like ignorant statements about other groups, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I might bother you as well. But because I travel in so many different circles, because I spend time with Palestinians and I spend time with Jews in the West Bank, I mean, I I live in Judea, like I live in Northern Judea, I live in the West Bank. So like even in my own community, or then I travel to the United States and I might be at a bar with some guys from If Not Now, or I might go uh, speak for a ZOA group or something. APAC has never invited me to speak. But in all of these different political circles I travel in, I'm always hearing statements about other groups that I'm connected to and Mm -hmm. in statements that are just like, so it's not just, I, I can understand if they're hateful statements, but based on something real, because like, let's be honest, we've been fighting each other for a hundred years. So Mm -hmm. I could understand if people have harsh feelings and like distrust and animosity, et cetera. But I see no positive value in superimposing an identity motivations, ideologies on even an enemy that have nothing to do with how that enemy experiences himself. I mean, yeah. even, if goal, even if your goal is not to transcend the conflict or solve the conflict, but just to win, like if, let's say your goal is just to destroy the enemy. I think you have an mm-hmm. obligation to understand how he sees himself, how he understands I- the conflict he's in. And we're afraid to do that. I think both sides are very much afraid to do that. We're afraid to like really hear how the other is experiencing the story because they're two completely different stories. We don't even agree on what the conflict's over. I think Palestinians, in my experience, really feel the conflict is an anti-colonial struggle. Whereas Israelis don't see it that way at all. They see a conflict between two competing nationalisms. Right. And like we've been fighting each other and it's, it's very horizontal in the minds of most Israelis. Yeah, not so with Palestinians. For sure not. So I think that these are just like small examples of how we're living in two completely different realities, two completely different movies. And I don't think we'll be able to move forward here in Israel or in conversations in the diaspora. We won't be able to move forward together until we're able to transcend 
are ostensibly conflicting narratives and actually create a bigger story or a bigger narrative, a bigger movie that's inclusive enough to encompass both of our stories. And to see right. how like, you know, the, the way I would define a narrative is really just a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. Mm-hmm. So I think w- what we're both doing, I'll, I'll give you an example. About 12 years ago, I remember having an argument really with uh, an activist from the SJP at UC Berkeley. And we were talking about 1948 and she kept g- giving me the number of Palestinian communities destroyed in the Nakba. Right. And I was trying to make the point that the British, even though like, we had defeated them and they left Palestine, and they even said that they left Palestine because of Jewish terrorism, they were still arming, training, and leading the Egyptian and Jordanian militaries into war against us. And we were having two completely different conversations. Like she was talking about how many Palestinian communities were destroyed. And I was talking about the British leading, you know, these armies into our country to fight us and take land from us, et cetera. And at one point she just kind of like stopped and heard a little bit of what I was saying. And she asked me, why do you keep mentioning Egypt? What does Egypt have to do with 1948? And at the time I thought to myself, well, this person is obviously completely ignorant, doesn't know anything. You know, why am I even talking to her? But years later, I realized that I didn't know how many Palestinian communities were destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody working at APAC does. I don't think anybody working at Stand With Us does. I'm not even sure anybody in the Israeli foreign ministry would know the answer to that. And that's when I started to realize that we have such different stories that the facts we each consider important to the story are different facts. Like, it's not that one side is lying and the other side is telling the truth, is that we're both organizing our stories very differently because we're selecting different facts, you know, and we're ignoring different facts and we're contextualizing and connecting those facts in such a way that we end up telling radically different stories and having a lot of trouble understanding what the other side is saying. Right. And, and therefore projecting and, you know, on them, like, for example, the high school teachers who told you that they hate you and want to hurt you, not because I think your high school teacher was a liar, but just because that's the takeaway your high school teacher gets or the APAC, whatever it was, the APAC counselor, I don't know who, who it was, but that's really how they perceive the BDS movement and SJP, et cetera. Oh, like, no, they absolutely fully believe what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And when I try to, you know, suggest, but by the way, you should know, they also boycott me. You know, I don't think APEC or Stand mm-hmm. With Us has ever wanted me to speak anywhere. Uh, right. And I think that your generation is ready for something new. I'd like to think sometimes we help to provide that. And not only us, I think that there are a lot of new organizations, new movements, new voices that are providing other outlets for Jews to kind of participate in their people's story without just having to go to an APAC policy conference. Yeah, I think um, it's actually a little bit cool because as annoyed as I am with kind of the Jewish establishment and as alienated as I feel, there's a lot of grassroots movement um, and energy happening um, Mm -hmm. in the Jewish world and especially with young Jews where people, Mm -hmm. maybe they don't feel alienated politically, but... um, they feel like they want something, you know, more community feel or mm-hmm. just something more. And so there's definitely um, also, I think, um, 
never again action. That was incredible mm-hmm. to me. Um, Against ice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was the first time that I have seen a true like grassroots movement made up of young Jews um, organized to that extent, at least in my mm-hmm. lifetime. And I thought it was a really good sign of potential things to come in the future. That is very promising. Yeah. I know we had a, a couple activists write for our magazine mm-hmm. uh, during some of the protests. But look, for me, the, the issue of immigration doesn't start with somebody trying to enter the borders of the United States. For me, it really starts with why they're leaving the countries they're coming from and the U.S. role in creating the situation they're fleeing. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it it's also shows a lack of just taking responsibility. Yeah. Before even getting into the treatment of people coming in. Yeah. No, I, I think that tends to be kind of the American narrative, um, kind of ignoring the role America played in, um, you know, intervening in Central America and mm-hmm. arming certain groups of people etc. And then when people try to escape the conditions America created, being up in arms about it. Right? right. Yeah. Right. And taking control of the economies and, and leaving essentially nothing for the peoples of those countries because all yeah. the American corporations are essentially just extracting all the valuable resources. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think is next moving forward? If uh, I mean, I'm optimistic. I don't know if you're as optimistic as I am. I, I tend to mm-hmm. look at a situation and kind of see the potential for how we're going to, the, the conditions for making things better. Even when I relate to Zionism, I tend to say, okay, so here we are. How are we going to use the conditions created by Zionism to move forward? Yeah. So I'm, I'm always looking for that way, how to improve, how to move forward, how to succeed in terms of just advancing our liberation and fixing whatever damage we've done along the way. Yeah, so I go back and forth between being very cynical okay. and very kind of optimistic. Um, uh-huh. I, I'll say that I don't know what will happen in the future. I see, That's um, probably true. Yeah, I see movements in two, you know, different directions. Um, mm-hmm. Not just two, but I see kind of positive movement and more harmful movement. Of course, you still don't know how history will play out. Um, it could go a completely different way than none of us foresee. Um, But I think as complex as the situation is, it's not actually that complicated compared to maybe other political situations around the world. Um, I think there are some really strong barriers to moving forward, but it's not actually that difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I am hopeful things can change. I don't know how Israeli society will change. Um, I know Palestinians will not stop, you know, fighting to return, etc. Um, so that's just not going to end. But you know, I think there's some. I think there's some hope, um, even not directly connected to it, just with uh, energy among different social justice movements and how that can maybe translate to Jews as well. Okay. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, where do you see your role in that? Meaning, okay, whether you're, yeah. when you have a vision for things moving forward, where do you see yourself in that? I think that my role, um, 
my what I've done so far is sort of used my community connections to force myself into mainstream Jewish spaces and act like I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be there um, and say whatever okay. I want. And actually, a lot of the time, I I get you know people do listen. Um, mm-hmm. If people are susceptible to listening, a lot of people just mm. legitimately don't have the information. They don't, they've never heard what I'm saying before, like what Palestinians experience or anything else. Um, mm. So I think I should be using my connections to the Jewish community to try to influence people in a way that, um, you know, it pushes them a little bit out of their comfort zone, but it doesn't completely shake their identities. Um, and I think that can be done. Absolutely. So that's how you see your role, like pushing new conversations and forcing people to confront things that they haven't previously confronted. Yeah. Okay. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, if you could do that, that's great. And uh, I, hope a lot of, uh, I hope a lot of positive momentum comes from that. Yeah. We do the best we can in the environments we're in. Right, exactly. And, uh, and there are a lot of opportunities, you know, like I'm sure where you are, there are a lot of opportunities for positive change. And like we said earlier on, I think the United States, it does look to be just an empire crashing right now. And that also means that there's probably a lot of space for conversations people weren't willing to have before. Yes, and that has happened very quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so definitely seize the momentum, take advantage of that. And, not to be cliche, but be the change you want to see. Yeah, I will try. All right. Lila, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes at visionmag.org 